You're listening to a 3CR podcast of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. Radio MMT respectfully acknowledges the traditional custodians of the land from which we are broadcasting, the Wurundjeri people, and we are broadcasting to the Kulin Nations. Our focus is economics, that is, how stuff is produced and distributed. We recognise that for many tens of thousands of years, First Nations people's connection to country successfully embodied the world's oldest continuous economy, which was catastrophically disrupted by genocide and displacement. We acknowledge that we have much to learn to reshape our current extractive and exploitive system to achieve sustainable prosperity for everyone. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev. Radio MMT. Looking at the world through the lens of modern monetary theory. Radio MMT. Macroeconomics for a well-being economy. Macroeconomics? Like, isn't that incredibly boring? No, Kevin, it's incredibly interesting. It's all about who gets what and why. Who gets what and why? Okay, I'm in. Radio MMT at gmail.com. Incredibly interesting macroeconomics for the rest of us. Welcome to Radio MMT. Anne, how are you doing today? Hey, Kevin, and hello to our lovely listener. I'm imagining you as Larry or Larissa, or perhaps you're both or neither. Or an in-betweener. Well, today, Kevin, I'm so pleased to have a chance to speak with Danny Roberts. Welcome to Radio MMT, Danny. Pleasure to be here. Now, Kevin and I have met you through a course that is being run by the folk at Modern Money Lab at Torrens University. So that's economist Stephen Hale and his crew. It's great having you and Kevin on our on our course doing the Modern Money subject. Associate Professor Stephen Hale, an economist at Modern Money Lab, bringing ecological economics and modern monetary theory to the masses. And Kevin, you and I are part of the masses, I think. Yeah. (laughs) And they run a series of courses called Graduate Studies in the Economics of Sustainability. And Kevin and I are doing one of the subjects called Foundations of Real World Economics. And that's where we met you, Danny, on Zoom, when we're meeting people from all over the world because it is an online course. So, so Danny, tell us about how you came to be doing this course and even how you came to be interested in modern monetary theory. Yeah, so, um, you know, in, in high school and college, I didn't take any economics classes. Um, the earliest I ever remember knowing what the content of an economics class was was in high school. So I would kind of hear things and I'd be like, that sounds totally made up. I can't possibly, you know, they're just kind of these stories. And I was like, I guess that's what economics is. It's a bunch of like just so stories. And I figured eh, it's probably just because it's a, a high school class. Um, I, you know, I also graduated college a couple of years after the financial crisis. Um, you know, I had some questions in the back of my head, <laughs> like a lot of people. And then um, I think it was really during the pandemic that I, uh, I picked up uh, Debt by David Graeber, and uh, shortly after that, I read The Deficit Myth by Stephanie Kelton. I think that book is, you know, the one that draws a lot of people in. So I think of Stephanie Kelton's book as the gateway drug into MMT. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it really was. And, 
you know, that book for me had that hook where I was like, okay, I'm going to read this, but like uh, some of this can't possibly be true. You know, you kind of like, I need, I I need more. I need more to see if this is, if this is right. Mm -hmm. You know, I kind of, I don't know, after that, I just was reading lots of articles by various MMPers and kind of for the last three years, I've just been consuming various things. So after you'd done this reading and, and the watching of YouTubes, which many of us are very familiar with. Um, so last year I went to the Levy Institute summer seminar, which is at the Levy Institute at Bard College. Mm. Yeah, this was at a university in like rural New York. It was, it was beautiful. So it was 10 days of lectures by, dare I say, dozens. Yeah, you know, economists, a lot of the key MFT people. I got to personally, you know, meet and hear, hear people talk. Stephanie Kelton, Pavlina Cherneva, Alka Boob, Matt Forsetter, Randy Ray. You know, it was really cool to recognize everyone's voices, you know, from all the, the YouTubes. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I've been enjoying it a lot, but I, I was kind of running out of things to do, uh, things to read. And and so, you know, I, my <laughs> my wife also noticed that I was spending a lot of time doing this. And she was like, hey, if you're going to be reading this much, like, hey, you might as well get some credit for it. And, <laughs> uh and uh, have it be a little more directed. So that's how I, um, you know, I, I came across this program at Torrens, and hmm. so far I'm enjoying it a lot. So before you got into this economics, um, what was your primary focus? Oh, so I'm a, a software engineer, um, software for international development, specifically global public health, community health systems. And through that, I uh, got interested in, in just sort of the general topic of global inequality. And, mm. and so I think, you know, that also ties into to my interest in economics. Mm-hmm. I do like understanding how systems work, but also... <laughs> we've we've heard that from more than one person. Yeah. <laughs> and that MMT is a much better description of the economic system than mainstream economics. Yeah, well, you know, I, I have never taken mainstream economics. From what I've read about it, I'm not usually not super impressed. Neoclassical economics has its roots in different versions of a model called general equilibrium, which was originally explained in the 1870s by somebody called Leon Valras. And that was a pure barter model. Associate Professor Stephen Hale. So uh, there is an incoherence about the neoclassical philosophy of economic inquiry. Radio MMT. Economics for the rest of us with Anne and Kev at 3CR Community Radio, Melbourne, Australia. Something that we've been learning about together in the course is this set of ideas that we call the barter myth. And of course, MMT is great at exposing all these ideas as myths. So as we mentioned, Stephanie Kelton put out a very popular book called The Deficit Myth. Uh, but the barter myth doesn't get quite as much airplay. So I thought it'd be quite an interesting one. <laughs> Most people believe that there was a pre-existing barter system and money somehow developed in the private sector out of that pre-existing barter system. Associate Professor Stephen Hale. Basically, that's the story most people have in their heads about money. Mainstream economics is rotten to the core and 
at the core of mainstream economics, we are discovering that there sits this thing called the barter myth. Um, and just to show how the barter myth is still alive and well, I'll read a quote which I found in an Australian newspaper, The Age. Um, it was published on July 29, 2022, and it was written by Jessica Irvine. Her article was titled, Inflation, Huh? Your Ultimate Dinner Party Survival Guide to the Economy. And this is what Jessica wrote. Back in the day, people lived relatively quiet lives, consuming only the limited goods and services they could provide themselves. Then they figured out what a great idea it was to head into the nearest town and swap one of their pigs for a cow. Or perhaps a haircut. Enterprising people sprang up to build businesses to specialise in producing one or a handful of products and services. They gained access to capital, that is, finance or equipment, and set about hiring workers or labour to help them produce at scale in return for wages. That is, they made an economy. So, <laughs> um, you know, this story as Jessica tells it was probably something that I believed but I didn't even you know really consciously think about and I don't think I'd even heard it described as the barter myth so I'm just wondering Danny do you feel like at any point the barter myth was lodged in your psyche yeah I don't know if anyone can grow up you know to to be 30 years old without having ever heard some version of the barter myth um, uh -huh. you know which again is that uh, in the beginning, uh, people lived in villages that looked a lot like, you know, an English village from the 1500s or something. And people were, were raising cows and some people were uh, raising wheat and they needed to exchange. I mean, already right there, it doesn't really make sense. Why would someone be full-time producing wheat for exchange when uh, there was no market yet to buy wheat, right? Mm. Well, I, I think when someone hears it, um, it's told in such a way that it's not supposed to matter whether it happened or not, just that it's sort of a good story that then you'll understand something fundamental about money, that it arose to facilitate these exchanges of cows and wheat or something. Mm -hmm. You know, as, as a realistic description, it never made sense to me, but I figured there was some reason people told it. I didn't think someone was telling me about how history works, but like maybe they were. I didn't think a whole lot about it. But, you know, I have talked to people who they thought that they had learned in their, you know, masters of finance class or something, that that was actually how money came about, that that actually described, you know, how Native Americans did trade with each other or how uh, pre prehistoric England or something how everyone sort of simultaneously invented money together, right? Not that it was just a good uh, mental model to have in your head. The myth that thousands of years ago, we lived in communities where there was already a high degree of specialization in terms of what we produced. And we all trade with each other and hundreds of other people trade with each other by swapping goods for goods and we have to have a, an exchange rate between apples and loaves of bread and loaves of bread and anything else that people might be trading. Stephen Hale. Obviously, that would be impossibly 
complicated and so people might find it convenient if there was a suitable product or commodity being traded in the system to start using that commodity as a general means of exchange for everything else. And uh, the story goes that the most convenient, uh, suitable commodities for that purpose were precious metals, and people end up talking about silver or gold. Yeah, I think I think that's a problem. I mean, it, it's a story that's in every textbook. Um, I think it is a problem if a field is pushing a story without making clear that it didn't happen mm. to, to have people walking away thinking, oh, that is actually, I learned some history today in my economics. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Not only is it bad history and bad anthropology, it's also really bad logic. And yet it is used without sort of reflection. Yeah. This myth is still taught in the first week of economics courses everywhere in the world in schools and universities, and people carry it around in their heads right the way across their lives. And even if they come to understand that it's not realistic, they're still influenced by it. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr.org.au. The barter story or this barter myth gets used to tell us about how money arose and why it arose. Yeah, so the story of the barter myth, uh, the reason it's so central to, I guess, neoclassical economics is that it's a story about how money arose as an essentially private thing. It was a, a natural occurrence. People naturally discovered at the sort of person-to-person level. The myth that uh, money emerged out of these pre-monetary barter systems in the form of commodity money. Dr. Stephen Hale. That money was invented in the private sector, or at least that real money was, and that governments and fiat money systems came along thousands of years later and basically messed everything up. What is so damaging about thinking that money arose in the private sector? Yeah, that's a great question. So this barter myth plays an important role um, in neoclassical economics and sort of neoliberalism, as vague a term as, as that might be, um, because it, it sets up private money as natural and what it would think of as the very recent history of governments, you know, sneakily taking over money. Um, it sets it up as sort of like the, the, I don't know, like a, an imaginary past that we could go back to, right? The beautiful days when we all were, you know, running around naked in Eden. <laughs> <laughs> and the problem here that took us away from that past is the greedy government, right? Trying to, trying to take everyone's things, trying to take your money. And, and literally trying to take even the whole monetary system so that it can you know, put it under its own control. Mm. And I don't want to whole, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's certainly things that governments do that are extremely bad, right? Um, but, you know, I think realistically, no monetary system has ever existed divorced from a government. 
government, it, it's, it's sort of like, if you don't like governments, like I, I have bad news for you, right? Like <laughs> you can't have money either, right? So <laughs> it does, it does sort of by setting the government up as sort of the villain in this story, it does allow um, deflecting of problems to sort of cast the blame on government when, you know, <laughs> when, you know, government does a lot of things wrong, but, you know, it's, it's not them intervening. Sometimes it's that they don't regulate enough. Sometimes, you know, whatever. So, you know, one of the things I feel like the Barter myth is hiding in this regard is, is the way the neoliberals end up saying, well, the private sector is the place where we need to make decisions about um, how we should use our resources. It is misleading because it makes it sound as though money comes from the private sector and governments came along later on and messed everything up. And that fundamentally money was sort of just a commodity that became sort of the benchmark commodity. Maybe it was wheat, maybe it was gold, but you know, eventually everybody in the world settled on a small number of precious metals like gold, silver. And so that commodity within a barter system it's a generally acceptable means of exchange for everything else. You start valuing everything else in terms of that uh, commodity. And I guess what we mean by a commodity is like it's an actual thing, right? Like gold. Right, yeah. Like you're supposed to have this idea that people were lugging around big bags of, of wheat or something <laughs> if wheat was the money that they used. Or, or you know, gold was better than wheat because you didn't have to lug around something big. And, and could be divided into little chunks that we could use as coins, you know. Right, right. And, you know, um, that kind of goes back to why money had to evolve out of barter, according to their story, because it was difficult to lug around all those chickens or all, all that wheat or whatever in order to barter. <laughs> and also, you might get to this, this medieval town with your bag of fish, and um, nobody wants to buy them. They're going to go off. And I think that's what they call trying to solve this double coincidence of wants, where you hope that the guy selling bread is going to want fish, and if they don't, it's just not going to work. <laughs> right, right. That's the story. And no pre-monetary society has ever been found to have used barter. If you imagine, well, like a society like ours, but instead of money, we just exchange things sort of on the spot. No society remotely like that has ever existed, according to anthropologists who have looked for it. And that's sort of surprising if you think that this is how money arose, uh, you know, mm. in history. Money never emerged from a pre-existing barter system, not even once as far as we can tell, nowhere in history. And there's plenty of evidence about how pre-monetary societies do behave. Um, and it, it's just sort of nothing like what you would recognize as a, an exchange society. Yeah, are you um, old enough to know of the Flintstones cartoon? Uh, maybe just old enough, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was this cartoon which was set in this supposedly Stone Age society. And it was about these families in the Stone Age. And one of the things they would do is they had these cars with little stone wheels and they were like a kid's car where your feet were sticking out the bottom and you were running around in these cars. And I'm bringing this up because there is a great article 
that's in a substack by Brett Scott and I'll put a link to it in the show notes and I highly recommend people subscribe to that substack. And he wrote an article called How to Write a Flintstones History of Money. And what he says is that the way the barter myth is telling the history of money is kind of like the Flintstones cartoon. And they're doing it um, using what he calls a presentist history. So what you do is you start in the present with what we have now, and then you project back onto the past that they're halfway to the present and that they're trying to get from the past into what we have now. So you've got these cars that don't have combustion engines yet because, <laughs> and don't have, you know, they don't have fossil fuel yet, but they've got the cars and they're just waiting for that all to happen. <laughs> and so in the same way, you've got people bartering or exchanging goods and they're just waiting for money to happen. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's a great analogy. Yeah, and so what that says to me is that like using the barter myth in economics is like using the Flintstones in, <laughs> in archaeology. Radio MMT on 3CR between 5.30 and 6.30pm the second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio MMT. If you like our show, subscribe to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. And you can find us through your favourite podcaster and give us lots of stars. And or give us a like on Facebook, Twitter or YouTube. Your support really helps. Because if you're not liked on social media, you don't exist. Danny Roberts. My understanding is that neoclassical economics largely models money as a commodity and not as a system of accounting debts. That's a great contrast between the two points of view, the MMT point of view, which does talk about money, that it did arise out of ancient kinds of accounting systems where they didn't think of the accounting as money. They were simply trying to uh, keep track of something like, say, an obligation that someone might have either to an authority or to each other through, you know, the things that can go wrong in society. If you accidentally uh, poke out your neighbor's eye, you might owe them something. <laughs> so, so that accounting story is just such a contrast to this commodity story. Money, or at least uh, currencies anyway, emerged out of public accounting and uh, systems of taxation and tributes introduced by the earliest forms of governmental institutions. The original function of a currency was as a unit of value, not as a thing, as whatever unit of value your tax liabilities were measured in terms of. Associate Professor Stephen Hale. Money in this sense goes back at least 5,000 years, as we're told in David Graeber's book, Debt, the first 5,000 years. Mm-hmm. Once you've imposed tax liabilities, then even 5,000 years ago, uh, before the technology of coinage was developed, you could issue currency tokens in the form of clay tablets, and they could be used alongside other things as a medium of exchange for goods and services. Absolutely. So part of our story is that fiat money is not a modern development. It's something that's been around for the whole history of monetary systems going back thousands of years. Mm -hmm. Commodities like gold and silver 
have played an important role in monetary history. David Graeber's book explains that's come into and out of fashion. They've become more important during periods of globalization and empires and colonization. Mm -hmm. And uh, the world moving away from a link between fiat money and gold, which happened in 1971 when the US dollar finally went off the modern version of the gold standard, uh, it's not the first time that monetary systems around the world moved away from commodities. It's also true that gold and silver played important roles in past monetary systems, including, you know, if you want to really stretch it all the way up to 1971. Danny Roberts. And, you know, if you go to Roman money, you could think of it as sort of there was a time when what you owed to your government was something physical. It was whatever they needed to keep their government running. So they took your sons, right, to join the army and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. You can imagine like, okay, you can you can pay your, your yearly dues or whatever to the government in a number of ways. You can provide food for the, the emperor or whatever. Um, and all of the people that have to be involved in bureaucracy of running the place, you know, you could pay it by yourself going and being a soldier and, and a number of different ways. And in order to keep track of it, you can give them a receipt that they brought what they needed to bring you in order to fulfill their obligation. That receipt um, is very close to being money. The only thing you need to add to it is for it to be able to you know, be traded. Let's say the way that receipt works is somebody came knocking at your door at the end of the year. It says, either give me you know, one of these valuable things or give me a receipt that uh, shows that you already have given this to the government. Wh- whoever like, gives this uh, during tax season doesn't have to give something valuable. And so all you need to do to turn that receipt into money now is to make it something that can be passed around. And um, now, when someone's delivering what they need to to the government to fulfill their obligation, that now looks a lot like doing work for pay by the government. Mm. Now, these receipts that were given out, they have to be durable. They have to be something that passes around. So, like, metal is a good, good option. They also have to be difficult to forge, something that not any old person could create. You know, you have to have some confidence that this this thing that you're returning to the government was actually created by the government and was you know, issued for this purpose. You know, the, the story there, you could accuse me of, of doing something similar where I'm making up sort of a stylized story, right? I'm not uh, a Roman historian, but I think my stylized story is at least a little more representative of, of what was happening. An alternative story, which has basically all the anthropological and archaeological evidence behind it and is it's still a very oversimplistic story but is something much more like what apparently happened am i right in saying that one of the reasons that silver and gold was used for coins is because it's a good material uh, a medium which is which can be worked can be shaped uh, is not going to rust um, it's durable the physical properties ma- made it a, a good option it's good to be used for uh, for coins, but it's also good to be used for a lot of other things. So it does have intrinsic value. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, it, it was important that they were rare. You know, it was important that you were making your coin out of something that it would be hard for someone else to make that coin. So it helped if your government had a monopoly of silver and gold mines. And as long as it did, it could be pretty sure no one else was, was creating these. Right? But then you've got, I think what you're explaining is that there's a feedback loop on that because then the coin becomes a commodity because it does have intrinsic value to the point that if a, a gold coin or a silver coin had a content of gold or silver that was greater than its face value, it stopped being a coin and it starts being a straight commodity. That's right. And I guess the point we're, we're making is that um, that the coin is representing something. It was a receipt for an accounting system. Yeah, that's right. I'm James Juniper. I'm an economist at the University of Newcastle and you're listening to Radio 3CR. So what disappears in the barter myth then is this legal accounting system that you're describing and all they're left with is this coin. <laughs> it feels like. Right. I read this uh, this great book by Christine Dasan called Making Money and it was all about money in England, essentially. Danny Roberts. The monetary system of, of England, the way it, it evolved, ended up sort of more or less being the template for every country on earth. They were not the first to have a central bank, but they were one of the early countries sort of setting those standards and silver money in England. It was best thought of as a fiat currency where the metal that they're printing the money on is silver. Um, you know, silver was itself a valuable commodity, just like any, any other commodity. And it did matter to people the exact silver content of those coins. But the value of the silver in the coins was necessarily quite a bit less than the face value of the coin. And, um, and so you could think of it as sort of a, uh, a, collateralized, a partially collateralized fiat currency. So if the government that gave you this coin sort of uh, went out of business, right? Like it, it, got, it lost a war or something, then the, the value of that money for tax payment was now nothing, right? No one was going to accept it anymore. But at least you still had a rare metal, right? And maybe somebody would give you something for that. Mm. Um, there was this shift in, in England and I think then other places to going from everyone understood that there was a difference between silver and money. That money was made out of silver and silver was something that was valuable in itself because you could sell it to France or whatever. But um, it went from being that to people thinking, you know, philosophers like uh, John Locke, the only thing that gives that money its value is its metal content. Mm. Uh, that view of what money was really shaped the monetary systems that started to be formed in the recent history, so like, you know, 1700s forward. And so there was an ideology around that and sort of a, a theorizing around that, that the system that existed was unjust or wrong because it allowed the government to like trick people into accepting its coins at less than what they're worth. And so starting with, the, with, with England, um, establish a system where... Um, they tried to make that so, right? They tried to say, 
um, you know, at this, it was funny, at the same time as they switched to paper money through the Bank of England, they switched from a scheme where, uh, you know, the face value of coins was sort of higher than the silver content mm. to a scheme where uh, the the money was defined by the silver. So even a paper note represented a certain amount of silver and could be exchanged you know, under certain conditions. Mm. Every 10 years or so, they would suspend convertibility because they couldn't, couldn't do it. And that's a, a pervasive feature of all silver standards and gold standards. But, you know, the idea was uh, you could you could go to the bank and exchange it for a fixed amount of uh, silver or I think gold in, uh, in, in the case of England at that point. And, um, you know, that was very much a constructed system. That was not uh, a natural outgrowth of the previous systems. This part of the history of money is just fascinating where we've got the rise of the Bank of England um, and they're doing it with a gold standard mentality. And we see the gold standard mentality resurrected, I think, um, numerous times over the next few centuries until we get to after World War II at the Bretton Woods Conference and they put us back on a gold standard, which, of course, they always fall apart and it fell apart in the 1970s. Yeah. Hello, I'm Philip Lorne. I'm adjunct professor at Torrens University and you're listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev on 3CR Community Radio. So, Stephen, are we saying that mainstream economists are making economic models of something that does not exist and has never existed? Well, yes, I suppose we are, really, in that um, modern macroeconomic models have at least some of their roots in uh, something called the general equilibrium model. Associate Professor Stephen Hale, an economist at Modern Money Lab. Which in its most sophisticated form, theoretically and mathematically, was developed by two uh, mathematical economists called Arrow and De Brewer in the 1950s. And uh, within their model, and uh, De Brewer made it clear that there was no role for money in the model at all. It was a pure barter model. And later on, a a very famous general equilibrium theorist called Frank Kahn said that uh, one of the biggest problems with economic theory was that there was no role for money in the most advanced theory that existed of the economy. When I first heard that, that economists don't put money in their theories, I was truly shocked. I could not understand that. I I felt like it was like surgeons not being interested in blood or something. Well, in in modern macroeconomic models, they they have something called money. They even now, since the global financial crisis, they have banks and financial markets. But the trouble is that they can never introduce anything which is at all realistic. Mm -hmm. Obviously, money exists in real life. Obviously, there's a stock market in real life. Banks actually exist. (laughs) So they have to put these things into models if they're going to use them to try and forecast events in a, in a real economy or simulate policy options. But they cannot put these institutions into their model in a realistic way because the model has no role for them. And actually, when you include money and banking in a general equilibrium model, the mathematical equilibrium which results 
is unaffected by having put money in banking in in the first place. Mm. Something like the 2008 global financial crisis uh, could never happen because their models don't have realistic money and finance in them because they still have their roots in that original barter system where money was something you added to the system was not something essential to it. Mm. It's only since the global financial crisis that the reserve banks general equilibrium model of the economy that they uh, use for forecasting the consequences of policy decisions like changes in in interest rates uh, has had banks in it. (laughs) 20 years ago, the RBA's main model of the economy didn't have banks in. There's a deep irony there somewhere. (laughs) After the GFC, the then governor of the Reserve Bank said, as far as I'm aware, nobody predicted this happening. Actually, everybody predicted it was going to happen who had the right model of money. (laughs) The reason why neoclassical economists never managed to predict or appropriately react to things like the 2008 financial crisis is because their model of the economy has its roots in that barter system. I I guess I'm still trying to get my head around what kind of a discipline would even begin with an assumption that they know is wrong. (laughs) Well, then you're going back to the philosophy of economic inquiry. Okay. Milton Friedman, of course, is one of the most famous neoclassical economists in history. He wrote an essay in the 1950s which sort of codified the neoclassical approach to realism uh, in that essay, which was called Positive Economics, he argued that the realism of the assumptions on which you base your model don't matter. Wow. And indeed, he went further than that. He said that in general, models with more unrealistic assumptions are more useful. (laughs) You just need to look at whether the predictions of the model are useful. He just overturned the Enlightenment. (laughs) Well... The view of the scientific method that came out of the Enlightenment was that if you're going to explain facets of the natural world through models and theories, then you need those theories to generate testable predictions, and then you need to test them. And Milton Friedman would agree with that. Okay. But he'd take it one step further. He'd say, if we just need to test the predictions of our model, we don't need to worry about the assumptions on which the model is based. It doesn't matter whether they're realistic or not. You just test the predictions. The problem with that, of course, is that when the model completely blows up, as in 2008, (laughs) they just sweep these things under the carpet and carry on regardless. The barter myth takes mainstream economics into some very strange places. We do hear about them all the time in the mainstream media. So these ideas have a life and they have a life that affects all of us. They would say that because their model of the economy has its roots in in the old general equilibrium model, which has a natural tendency to remain close to full employment over time, they say money is neutral. They don't mean money doesn't affect anything. They mean it doesn't affect output and employment in their story. If you print more money, it just drives prices up. Mm. Then given that the economy will naturally on its own move towards full employment, 
then you get the story that if governments deficit spend and if they, in inverted commas, print money to pay for this deficit spending, well, they're adding something which isn't real money to the system anyway, because paper money or fiat money isn't real money at all. Mm. That won't increase output and employment over time. Instead, it'll just drive prices up. That's the old quantity theory of money. Mm. Deficit spending by governments, which is facilitated by money printing, will inevitably be inflationary. That's very topical at the moment, isn't it? Because what I'm hearing is the mainstream economists are blaming the current inflation that we're seeing on all the spending that happened during the COVID pandemic when the governments were basically helping a lot of workers keep a roof over their head by spending into the economy then. Am I correct in thinking that these general equilibrium models are what is telling them that this is the cause of inflation? You are naturally biased towards thinking this way if you are a neoclassical economist because whether you take it uh, very seriously or not, you're influenced by the old quantity theory of money. They all are. The idea that the money supply influences the price level and changes in So if you print money, it drives prices up. But that does go back to the barter myth. And if we go to Adam Smith in the 18th century or we go to Leon Valras towards the end of the 19th century, they are, at least most of the time, thinking of the economy as though it's still a barter system. Mm. Within that barter system, they imagine that there is a obviously entirely fictional and uh, super quick and efficient auctioneer who uh, announces relative prices for every pair of goods within the system until you get the right set of relative prices, um, the right exchange rate between apples and bicycles and between every other pair of goods, so that the demand for everything and the supply of everything are equal to each other. Mm -hmm. And a general equilibrium is the result. And within that general equilibrium, there is full employment. Mm. To cut a long story short, modern economics still treats our economic system as a system where if there were not imperfections or frictions, there would be perpetual full employment and stability. There would be no prolonged involuntary unemployment. There would be no financial crisis, or at least there'd be no economic crises that were not caused by something real happening, like a a rock hitting the planet from outer space or perhaps a major pandemic. So this, this idea of equilibrium that's in these general equilibrium models, um, what it's saying to us is that really the economy is naturally tending towards, for example, full employment. And this is a real bugbear of mine, that there's no such thing as involuntary unemployment. So we got to this idea that everyone who wants paid work has got paid work because we're assuming that there's this equilibrium and we're assuming that because buried underneath that is this barter myth that is still being used in the assumptions. Or at least that you would get to a situation where there was no involuntary unemployment if you just got rid of frictions. And including in those frictions would be minimum wage laws, And even the payment of job seeker allowance or unemployment benefit, if you just get rid of all those things, (laughs) if the price of something was too high and that something might be labour, 
then the price would fall and that would create more demand for it and less supply until demand equals supply. Mm. If you take this to its logical extreme, what we need to do then is you need to smash trade unions, get rid of minimum wage laws and abolish unemployment pay. Then there'd be no involuntary unemployment because wages would fall to whatever level was necessary in order for there to be full employment. Mm -hmm. Essential to have this view of the world is to have the story of uh, the emergence of money and the nature of money wrong in the first place. So it does go back to the barter myth. And as John Maynard Keynes said, who understood this perfectly well in his general theory book in 1936, if your answer when there's involuntary unemployment is that wages need to fall, wages might need to fall indefinitely towards zero. And in fact, that will just make the situation worse in an economy consisting of lots of debts, because as people have lower wages and they start defaulting on mortgages, and as businesses have to sell their goods for lower prices, well, if they borrowed in order to invest in capital equipment to go into business, they're not going to be able to repay their loans, so they're going to default as well. And that's when you end up with a financial crisis like 1929 or 2008, which simply couldn't happen within the neoclassical or mainstream story about the economy. In a realistic story, money and finance are at the centre of the story. Associate Professor Stephen Hale. So credit is central to the monetary system using a realistic, correct story for talking about money. Mm. Of course, this is particularly true when we start talking about capitalism from the 18th century onwards, the economy is a monetary system. It's a system of interconnected balance sheets evolving over time, always with the potential for the development of a fragile financial system and potentially a financial crisis. You're listening to 3CR 855 AM on digital and on the internet, www.3cr. When we're talking about barter as a myth, we're not saying that barter doesn't exist or never existed. What we're saying is that entire economies have never been based on barter. Is that correct? So there have always been barter transactions. Yes, and there still are. There were barter transactions before the development of what we might regard as modern monetary systems 5,000 years ago. There were even primitive currencies Mm. in what we regard as pre-monetary systems, but they weren't currencies the way we understand currencies today. Uh, In uh, traditional societies where 100 or 150 people might live, then there might be an established currencies which might be uh, decorative shells or um, reed mats, a wide variety of things which were exchanged between people when a marriage took place or if I injured your brother in a fight, I might have to pay your family some compensation to keep society together. We might also barter as part of a, a ceremonial meeting with local groups as an alternative for fighting. Mm. But in terms of the necessities of life which we consume, food, 
in particular, that was shared within the community. We didn't trade for that. Mm-hmm. There wasn't really a, a, an exchange economy. So there were forms of transactions going back well beyond the development of what we would regard as money and monetary economies, but people didn't trade for basic necessities. Yes, we recognise that barter does exist and it actually has existed in history, but when it was being used in various other cultures and historical times, it had a different role from money. Uh, Reciprocity of gifts or something. Mm. Like, so in weddings, for example, (laughs) they they would give gifts um, for the bride sort of thing. So there's an exchange of the, the bride for gifts, but that was actually more about cementing the cultural ties between families than about, you know, having a, a barter system as, as an economic system. Yeah, I mean, can you, can you imagine, like, looking at that and, you know, interpreting that as, oh, this family bought that daughter for a cow or something <laughs> is a, a total misunderstanding of that situation, right? I mean, this family is sending off, let's say, their, their daughter to live with another family, their daughter who they love and... and you have to look at it from from very sort of outside eyes to, to think of that as, as barter at all. Well, there have always been barter transactions, but barter plays no role in the history of currencies. To say that there's no such thing as a barter system, I actually engage in a barter system quite often, um, working as a handyman. I will exchange... Uh... Well, you don't really, because, because it's not a system. It doesn't encompass all your needs and all the things that you trade for. When I use the term barter system, I mean that the great majority, if not all, transactions are facilitated through barter. That's what I mean. No such thing has ever existed. So, so there is barter, but there's not a barter system. Yeah, we're not saying there's not ever been such a thing of barter. There have always been barter transactions. There has never been anything that you could regard as an exchange economy where the great majority of things and basic necessities are traded by people who specialise in doing a narrow range of tasks and engaging in exchange to meet most of their needs based on barter. It's never existed. So, so barter is a, a personalised thing between a, an entity or two. Um, it can't really expand much past that because it would be too complicated. Absolutely. And it was never the case that there was a high degree of specialisation within those societies where people bartered for most of the things that they consumed. So if we regard such a system as an exchange economy, there has never been an exchange economy based on barter, as far as we can tell. People say barter never existed and that barter is a myth. Uh, Barter does exist. Um, uh, I'll do it myself. Uh, If I do a job for somebody, I might exchange my services for something which isn't money. Uh, that's a barter. It's a swap. It's a trade. Um, you know, yes, sometimes people barter, but only people who have previously had the experience of using money. What people do in their head when they barter is they think, well, how much money does that cost? <laughs> and how much money is what I'm giving you cost? And are they close enough to just make it not worth it to, you know, make this more complicated? Mm-hmm. Or, you know, like you hear stories about like in a prison, people using cigarettes. But like what they're trying to do is recreate a system that they recognize from their life outside. Yeah. 
uh, I might exchange uh, tasks for somebody that need doing around the house in exchange for um, board. Uh, I'm going to stay here for a while. Um, I'll fix a few things. You put me up. But you don't do that at the supermarket. No, I know. But quite often you can you could have a, a barter arrangement to avoid paying tax. Uh, and I think the tax implication there it kind of highlights the fact that the two systems are very different. But people will take payment in cash to avoid paying tax, Kevin. Yeah, or you can try barter as well. <laughs> <laughs> a barter transaction is less likely to come to the attention of the authorities. Sure. But at least some transactions which are technically barter would be included by the Australian tax office in your taxable income and you would then have to obtain Australian dollars in order to pay your taxes. Yes, indeed. For example, if you engage in transactions involving cryptocurrencies, they are technically barter transactions. Technically, that should be part of your taxable income. You would need to get the genuine currency, the Australian dollar, in order to pay your taxes. And as we know, it's tax liabilities that create a demand for the national currency in the first place. Now as it was 5,000 years ago. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks for your time, Steve. Uh, Much appreciated. Thank you very much once again for coming on to Radio MMT. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, Danny, thanks so much for your time today. Oh, I, I enjoyed the opportunity. Thanks, Danny. You've been listening to Radio MMT with Anne and Kev. We'd love your feedback. Email us on radiommt at gmail.com or search Radio MMT on social media. Listen to this show anytime, wherever you get your podcasts or on 3cr.org.au forward slash Radio MMT. Support this show and the station by subscribing to 3cr.org.au and mention Radio MMT. We thank all our guests. And we thank economist Professor Bill Mitchell and his mmted.org, educating masses on modern monetary theory. And thank you to our listening listeners for listening. And I thank you, Kevin. And I thank you, Anne. So what's planned for next week? Kevin, there is still so much to talk about. You've got to expose all this rotten economics. Well, yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's good, and I get it. Do you reckon we could use a bit more music? Well, I made a list of all these terrible economic theories. Like, have you heard of the theory of comparative advantage or the quantity theory of money or the loanable funds theory? Have you heard of a band called Single Gun Theory? Like, they're a really good band. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole... You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.